Hello and welcome to another edition of Webinar Extra. This is where we bring you some more time with one of our webinar presenters so that we can answer some of those additional questions that, well, there just wasn't enough time for during the live event. Think of it as the dessert to the main course. You mean the bonus track at the end of the album. I mean the podcast after the night before. And if you haven't already seen the webinar, then you can head to our college online learning page and check it out. Or you can just keep listening, nodding sagely while you wonder what everyone is banging on about. The choice is yours. We hope you enjoy the programme. So following on from the webinar earlier on this week, a headache for optometrists. It certainly wasn't a headache. Um, I, I think most optometrists who attended the webinar are now much better informed of all things headache related. So welcome again to Dr. Ben Wakerley. Um, thank you for giving up some time this afternoon to answer follow-up questions. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you, Daniel. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And um, and thank you again for the webinar on Wednesday evening. Covered a lot of ground and we had a lot of questions um, come in and, and it was a real canter through everything headache related. Thank you very much. Um, thank you for inviting me to give that uh, talk and um, it was a lot to cover. So let's run through some of the unanswered questions from this evening. Um, first question, a really broad one. Could you recap for us the main red flags relating to headaches? Okay, so um, there are one or two important uh, red flags when taking a headache history. And uh, identification of these red flags usually means that the patient needs some further investigations. Um, in essence, we get very worried when we see patients with a headache associated with any neurological signs. So that essentially means, you know, have they got new arm weakness? Are they confused? Have they got any new neurological signs? Um, because that indicates that the underlying cause may be structural, and that would be an indication to do um, a brain scan. And we also worry about headaches which are um, abrupt onset, so-called thunderclap headaches, because that indicates that something has uh, probably popped or blocked in the brain. Um, we worry about patients with um, underlying illnesses. So, for example, is there an underlying uh, cancer or have they got a diagnosis of HIV? Um, in the context of a new headache, that would be worrying. Um, we always worry when older patients get new uh, types of headaches um, and if the headaches have uh, changed at all. Um, next question, could you explain to us the main differences in the different types of aura? Okay, so um, essentially... Uh, about a third of patients with migraine um, develop aura um, before the onset of headache. And um, in the majority of cases, these are visual, and these can take the form of zigzaggy lines, black spots, loss of peripheral vision, or scotomas. Um, some patients get sensory aura. Um, for example, they may develop some numbness, um, uh, which slowly moves up their their arm or across the face. Um, occasionally, um, patients get brainstem symptoms. They may, they may start yawning. Um, they may um, develop uh, dizziness or, or vestibular symptoms. Um, and those are the main types of aura. Next question, I can never quite pronounce this. With amaurosis fusax, how long does it last? So amaurosis fusax, it, it actually means uh, fleeting darkness or, or fleeting curtain. And um, in the context of uh, embolic stroke, um, because that's, that's usually the cause, so you're getting a very small uh, embolus, which is blocking one of the, um, the small blood vessels in the back of the, the retina. 
it usually lasts between um, a couple of minutes and 30 minutes. Um, sometimes it can be longer and sometimes it can be permanent. Is pseudopapilledema a sight-threatening condition? Um, pseudopapilledema always needs further investigation because, of course, we need to exclude uh, papilledema, which is true swelling of the optic disc. But from a neurological point of view, um, I'm always reassured when, uh, so when one of the ophthalmologists uh, gives a diagnosis of pseudopapilledema. And I'm not aware that it's sight-threatening, um, but there may obviously be some rarer causes where it could potentially be sight-threatening, and, and that would be something for the ophthalmologist to investigate further. So it's a thumbs-up from a neurologist perspective and a watch exactly. space from ophthalmology. Exactly. Fantastic. How effective are the treatments for cluster headaches that are available? Well, um, the acute uh, treatments for cluster headache are, are usually quite effective and uh, most patients benefit from either uh, injectable uh, sumatriptan or high flow oxygen. Um, longer term uh, treatment uh, using preventatives um, is sometimes more difficult, uh, mainly because patients oft often don't um, tolerate the, the preventatives that, that we give them. Um, so longer term treatments are more difficult, um, but, but overall the majority of patients do benefit from long term preventatives. So you spent um, uh, a good part of the webinar talking about idiopathic intracranial hypertension. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about the mechanism behind it and how sixth nerve palsy is caused? Okay, so um, idiopathic uh, intracranial hypertension, or IIH for short, um, is a syndrome of raised intracranial pressure um, in the absence of any obvious structural cause um, in the brain. So these patients, when they have brain scans, they don't have any, they don't have any large masses in the brain or any blo uh, blocked blood vessels at all. It typically occurs in young uh, women who are obese, and um, it, it, it's thought to be related to adipose tissue. So there's something in, in the fat cells which is being released into the blood, goes to the brain, and uh, tips the balance between um, the production of uh, cerebrospinal fluid and the, the absorption of cerebrospinal fluid in such a way that there's an accumulation and this leads to raised intracranial pressure. Now um, a proportion of patients with IIH develop horizontal diplopia and um, this is due to involvement of the abducens or the, the sixth cranial nerve. Uh, this cranial nerve uh, doesn't do much, all it, all it does is it pulls the, the eye ball to the side that uh, innervates the, the, the lateral rectus muscle and um, it, it sort of has quite a tortuous pathway through the brain and therefore it's very very sensitive to, to pressure changes so in the context of um, raised intracranial pressure of any cause um, then it can be um, it can be uh, temporarily um, damaged and then this then leads to a paralysis of the la lateral rectus muscle and uh, horizontal diplopia. Are IIH and ICP the same condition? Uh, no, they're not. So IIH, intracranial, um, idiopathic intracranial hypertension, I just talked about that. Um, ICP is just uh, intracranial pressure. Um, so there, there are lots of conditions which can cause raised intracranial pressure. Um, the, the one that we worry about the most obviously is, is if someone has um, a large space occupying lesion, for example, a brain tumour. And we also worry about um, when patients get uh, blood clots in their brain.
so from a, a lay perspective, it's like ICP is a sign of a condition, whereas IIH is a condition itself. Yes, IIH is a is a relatively rare condition. ICP um, is is uh, just intracranial pressure. That, that's great. Thank you very much. In giant cell arteritis, um, would you see um, the discs affected in both eyes or just one of them? Uh, well, visual involvement. Uh, is relatively common in giant cell arthritis um, and typically about 20% of patients will complain of visual loss and with this there's often uh, changes in the disc and one thing we do know is that if, if, you, if you do develop um, unilateral uh, visual disturbance then there's up to a 50% chance that you'll develop uh, symptoms in the other eye. So in other words, half of patients, up to half of patients that develop unilateral uh, visual disturbance uh, may go on to develop bilateral um, visual disturbance. And therefore, yes, you can see changes in both eyes, especially if treatment is delayed. So penultimate question, um, is a sunk headache the same as a cluster headache? Okay, so um, both sunk headaches um, and cluster headaches are members of the so-called trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias or TACs. And this is a, this is a, a relatively a rare group of primary headache disorders. SUNCT itself um, stands for sudden onset neuralgiform headache with conjunctival injection and tearing. And um, it's, it has some similarities with uh, cluster headache and some differences. The main similarities are that um, it's often what we call side locked. So in other words, it often just occurs on one side of the head. Um, patients also display these uh, autonomic symptoms. So they get lacrimation. Um, they may get, uh, well, they get conjunctival um, injections. So they, the, the sclera becomes red. Um, and um, the pain is also very severe. Um, they're more like cluster headache, they're more common in, in, in males. Um, but the, the duration is significantly less. So in cluster headache, um, duration is typically between 30 minutes and um, 180 minutes, so three hours. Whereas um, in uh, sunked, uh, duration is between a couple of seconds and 240 seconds. And, um, and also patients with sunk have far more attacks in a given day. So uh, in cluster headache, patients rarely get more than five attacks a day, whereas patients with sunk may get up to 300 individual attacks in a day. So there are, there are differences and there are similarities. Thank you for, for explaining the difference there. So it's a quite a significant difference. And with that ocular involvement as well, quite a relevant one for optometrists. And um, final question bit of a broad one I guess. Stress. Is it a trigger for visual migraines? Well that's an interesting one. Um, and typically, and, and people have looked at this in detail in the past, um, although stress can cause migraines, especially in the context of sort of not looking after yourself, not eating, not drinking, not sleeping, um, often patients develop migraine um, uh, when you have the transition between stress and relaxation. So for example, um, it's not uncommon for people to get very bad migraines on a Friday night after a, a busy week at work um, or on a Saturday morning. And, and it's quite common actually for patients to have um, the first few days of their relaxing holiday ruined by migraine. Ben, 
that's all of our questions. Thank you very much, Dem, for your time for really a very informative and enjoyable presentation and podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Daniel. You're welcome. Thank you very much for listening to another webinar extra. For more college podcasts, head to the college website or just keep refreshing this feed every five seconds until another one appears. And please do also like, rate and subscribe and we'll speak to you again soon. Thank you.